Welcome to McKinsey's Digital Dinner Podcast, hashtag digital dinner. This is our ongoing series that brings together different voices here in Silicon Valley to explore the ongoing trends and emerging shifts in today's digital world while enjoying some good food, which we're doing here tonight. We're meeting tonight at the Salt House Restaurant here in San Francisco. I'm Brian Gregg. I'm a partner in McKinsey's San Francisco's office, where I lead our marketing and sales work on the West Coast and much of our consumer digital efforts. And I'm thrilled, absolutely thrilled, to be joined tonight by a few esteemed marketing executives, all of whom who have either sat in or currently sit in the C-suite. Why don't we go around the table here just to introduce ourselves, starting with you, Robert. Hi, uh, nice to meet everybody. I'm Robert Chetwani. I'm a chief marketing officer of an early stage company called Teespring. Uh, prior to Teespring, I spent 12 years at eBay, uh, most recently as a CMO for the North America business. Hi, everyone. It's nice to be here with you. I'm Jennifer Becca. I'm the CMO of StubHub. My name is Pete Kim. I am the CEO of Mighty Hive. Mighty Hive is a venture-backed, uh, San Francisco-based advertising company. We operate both a trading desk as well as uh, produce our own advertising software. I'm Mark Phillips. Um, I'm not from California, as you can probably tell. I was previously um, CMO at Beats Music and our CMO at Hotel Tonight. Uh, so I am Diane Esber. I'm a leader in our digital practice at McKinsey, based in San Francisco. And as I was telling Mark on the way here, I'm actually from Palo Alto, which is so rare in the Bay Area to be from the Bay Area. Native uh, Northern California. <laughs> yes, exactly. So my first question tonight, everyone, is a debate I'd like to see if we either all agree on or disagree on, which is, are we living in the golden age of marketing? Yes or no? And what I mean by this is, as you look out in the world today, you could, on one hand, say, holy cow, the marketer's never been under more pressure. The pressure for growth, the pressure for ROI, the pressure for agility. On the other hand, the marketer has never, ever had this much data, this, these many touch points, these many opportunities to connect with consumers. So I'm curious, in your own mind, is this a golden age, or is this the actual dark age that marketers are entering into? Jennifer, you're smirking, so I'll start with you. What do you think? We probably all agree that marketing is a mix of art and science. And the data part of it falls into the science part. And as a, as a scientific kind of look at what marketing means, I think it's definitely the golden age. But when you really understand marketing as a mix of art and science, I just can't agree that we're in the golden age of marketing. Um, I'm sorry. I, I, I think it's. I think what's what, what's stressful about thinking about this is the golden age is that there's so much content creation that's happening from every angle that users are creating content. That there's content on the sides of buildings that are produced by street artists. There's so much noise. There's a lot of competition for attention, as well as the fact that there's a speed and an immediacy demand that means that you sometimes are producing things that aren't of artistic quality or maybe even of data integrity. To me, it's not the dark age, it's the fun age. This is where we're really going to chew on some very, very meaty problems and we get to figure out how do you preserve the art while leveraging the science? How do you organize a company and organize and execute a marketing plan in order to have real leverage provided by the new technologies that have come out. It is, for someone like me, that is 
probably the most fun that you could ever describe, to be at the cutting edge, to find the new and exciting things, and to really be in the golden age of discovery at a time when marketing matters so much. I look at the world through the lens primarily of retail, right, and, and, and consumer. And so when I look at most organizations and CMOs, and I sort of peek into the company and sort of look at how their teams are structured, more so now than ever before, what I see is these are disparate functions as to one holistic team. And this is not only true in large companies, I'm actually also seeing the exact same thing happen now in early stage consumer internet companies. But this is where I think actually the next stage is really interesting because actually the, there's two big trends I see. And the first one is actually integration. And I think actually the interesting thing I loved about marketing now is that you can't exclude me from product. You can't exclude me from finance. You can't exclude me from you know, operational. No, they are in every. I am in every single bit. I'm not always a decision maker, but I've got to be involved as part of it. And I think that's sort of. I think that's where there's a real. I think the next age. We've had the age of the accountants. We've had the age of the sales guy. We had the age of the inventors and everything else. I think at some point, please be God, there must be an age of a marketer at some point. <laughs> but, because actually, at the end of the day, I think the thing I've found to your point there is. Cross-functional really works because at the end of the day, there's one user, and it may be B2B or B2C or whatever. But there's one user, and you've got to give them a great experience. I think small company and large company, or anything in between, one of the most significant challenges for a fast-growing enterprise or a, a complex enterprise is, is systems thinking, right? Which is to look at how do you bring together disparate perspectives across an organization and align all of that to a customer-centric view and. In a large enterprise, in my experience, is that the challenge is competing priorities with different groups that are all trying to solve slightly different objectives, which ultimately may align to a common metric, but how you get there is uh, inconsistent across teams. And so, um, you know, it's very difficult and challenging to sort of bring that systems view together. It's more about actually how do you, what's your internal culture around decision making, frankly? because we've all got growth challenges, we've all got, and there's always some sort of key business metric that's you know, hitting us around the head every night and every morning. So I think it's more with that, it's like, it's, it's, can, can we unify the management team into all agreeing what basis we're actually gonna make decisions around you know, what are the priorities gonna be? And I think the risk I see a lot of the time, and particularly I think it's hard with you know, VC early stage companies, of we've gotta keep this growth trajectory up. But actually, what does that sometimes come at the cost of? And, and I think that's where it's, you know, things like the user experience actually can make a huge positive impact on that growth rate. Well, too many CMOs these are talking about customer experience. Yeah. And the problem with customer experience is, I think back to Mark and Robert both said, it touches everybody. Like that's everybody, you could argue it's everybody's job, but CMOs at the center of it. So my question, and maybe Pete, we start with you. What's the role of the CMO in terms of owning the customer and actually stewarding that, that relationship, that journey, whatever you want to call it, end to end. To me, the ultimate extension and the ultimate place we end up when we integrate things is that, the, that marketing owns the conversation, which is all the interactions, right? In all of its glory, both paid media interaction during the customer journeys, right? Yes, customer supports and all of those things. It has to because all of it comes together as a place where the opinion right, of the consumer is formed of the, you know, the, the company. You know, when I was launching Sirius Internet Radio, I was working collaboratively with really brilliant engineers that understood space communications. And I was 
I was in a marketing and interactive role. Um, I, there was there was no organization that was that was sort of the product organization that that is the same organization that we're talking about product today here. So the marketing team had to define the requirements. That we understood the voice of the the user we were trying to solve for. We outlined the experience that what needed to happen. We were able to talk about pricing and presentation and all sorts of interactive kind of elements that made that all come together. But in my recent experience, it, it, it's there's a tension that makes it very difficult for the, the marketer to, you know, balance being a promoter of the product to satisfy a lot of really important effort that gets generated from product and technology, but at the same time, a promoter of the meaningful user experience internally. Some of the things that we've done um, for some of our clients have, include, have included using other types of data, right, that normally haven't been used in, for marketing purposes in the past. Is a website the only way that a person can demonstrate interest? Of course not, right? So we started working with call center retargeting. And, and that, that's, you know, if somebody calls into a call center and says, hey, I'd like the pricing on XYZ products, right? They're probably pretty deep. I mean, I would argue that they're deeper deep than bits. somebody, because yeah. yeah, they decided to pick up totally. their phone, dial a, dial a phone number, and wait on hold forever in order to kind of, hopefully not forever, but you know what I'm saying. So, so what we did was we started taking those phone numbers and then putting ads online based upon that phone number within 24 hours. Unsurprisingly, it worked. But that led to a deeper conversation of, okay, now that we've got a small step forward in having the customer experience, the customer support guys in the call center, working with the marketing guys, let's build off of that. So now you have these two groups working collaboratively together, but at the end of the day, there's always this tension of, okay, well, who gets credit for well, that? And the call center's trying right? to reduce call time. And, they're and, to, and so how do you yeah. create the environment that supports folks working together? For me, I've found the, uh, this may be a little bit too kumbaya, right? But I've like literally pounded the table on behalf of the customer, right? And ultimately, if I'm working with a team that's worth working with, right, that will be a persuasive argument. So I wanted to hopefully talk a little bit about curiosity. Curiosity is inherently useful, feels very young and, and fresh. We lose a little bit of that freshness and that ability to be vulnerable from a youthfulness point of view when we're in the business of our, of our sort of walls of the organization. Like, you feel like you have to know everything or you have to be the expert. And really, at the end of the day, I think what solves the connective glue is not perfect, but a lot of it is just being vulnerable enough to be curious. I love this. So, Mark, I'm interested as a guy who came from a lot of like companies who are up and coming. It, was the Curious Quotient higher there? From what I've seen, I've been in like you know, Candy Crush. We was growing quite fast when I was at King. Um, Beats, we went from nowhere to you know, a sale, and um, you know, Hotel Tonight is fast growth as well. I think the thing I, I've found with it is that the interesting thing is it comes down to curiosity is about how open can you keep your mind. Well, I think here in Silicon Valley, we talk about pivots. I think we talk about it way too much, personally, uh, because I think the consumer experience gets broken so badly when we do this too much. 
But I think the, the point about actually being able to always question, and I think that curiosity from that sense is intrinsic. It's much, much harder to do it. It's a natural thing, I think, for marketers do. It's a very hard thing, I think, to do in some of the early stage startups where you've got founders which thrive and survive on conviction. That's right, and, assertiveness. And yeah. Exactly. And I've been in those meetings where it's just like, I started this business on a hunch, that's my hunch. And, you know, there's not much you can there's argue with that. There's not much curiosity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not much curiosity there. <laughs> you know, when you, when you compete, there's sort of different dimensions upon which you compete, right? Which is one is your product or service offering, second is quality, and third is um, what's the customer experience like? And you know, in today's age, at least for fast-growing early-stage companies, everything you do still never feels like enough. Actually, I think sometimes we actually need to slow it down, and we actually need to start from the point of view that I think sometimes we're, 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 we're missing things. We're missing the opportunity to create experiences, and we're creating value points. And I think that's where those user journeys are actually really valuable, because you can suddenly start going, do we actually genuinely create enough value on this process here that actually it's going to, users are going to stick with it for long enough, engage with it long enough, spend enough money or whatever else it's going to be. So I think that first and foremost, um, you know, speed in the checkout process and speed in sort of the user touch points has obvious benefits. As a fan of Hotel Tonight, I can absolutely say I have definitely checked out in 10 seconds and been happier for it. Speed for its own sake is useless. Speed to increase the pace of innovation to increase the rate of iteration, to increase the rate at which you can experiment and learn, and therefore move closer towards the ideal experience if such a beast exists, that is the main thing. But perhaps it does bear saying that perhaps today it's even more important to be fast because there's so much changing. But here's my question, you guys. If you look at LinkedIn, this is a product getting a job, which happened once every three years, five years, seven years, depending on what state you live in, they've made it a daily behavior. But what's the lesson there for if I'm selling a trip to Vegas or if I'm selling a pair of Nike shoes or whatever the once of three every seven months I buy, what's the lesson there? There's got to be one, no? What LinkedIn has done, I, I believe, is very um, relevant for what retailers need to do. <clears throat> you know, if you think about the traditional role of a retail, it was in the most efficient way possible. Um, create access to products that customers can purchase, right? Historically, offline. If you look at the role of retailers today, it's that as table stakes, which is the delivery experience, the ability to shop, and now it's around curation, expertise, authority, a point of view, um, and content. Brian and I were talking about hot buzzwords for the year, uh, and we talked a little bit about disruption. And we thought both from a technology perspective, from a business model perspective, everyone's worried about how they're going to get disrupted. So we thought we might end with, you know, what do you think about when you think of disruption? What are you most worried about or concerned about? Personally, I think it's probably about the most overused word. Um, <laughs> Christensen is on yeah. record saying it's overused. Yeah, well, it's, it's, like it's in the last 24 hours. Means Cambridge like agrees with that. Well, that's impressive. But it comes down to the end of the day is actually, I try to look at disruption around, are you really solving, are you understanding and then being able to solve what the real problem is? Or are you actually just got an idea which you think you can make money from? And that's, that's sort of me where I think there's something around, this whole, it would be great to rephrase disruption and have some other phrase for it. Which is your, which is your chosen phrase? How's your rephrase? 
I'm on the spot now, aren't I? Can I have another drink? <laughs> yeah, I think I'd go down to it's genuine problem solving. It's true problem solving. It's how I would call it, what disruption should be. Yeah. And instead, so often, I think particularly here, we see where there's one valet car, car service launches, great idea. You've suddenly got nine valet car services. Are they really great ideas? Robert, any rebuttal or disagreement with what is disruption for the marketer? Yeah, I think a about a lot of the most successful business models, at least those that are sort of seen as, as having achieved some level of success, they're operating in very traditional industries. You know, car services, hospitality, um, you know, content distribution. And, you know, I, I think rather than uh, entrenched companies worrying about how, you know, more innovative business models can attack their, their own sort of structure, I see plenty of opportunity for companies to begin reinventing that themselves. You know, the, the, the one from years ago, which is an easy example to point to, was, was Netflix killing their DVD business, right? And then there was a lot of sort of pushback on, on actually doing that. And so they created some sort of a business unit or subsidiary that sort of managed that, which I'm not even sure even exists today. But it was very forward thinking to look at how can we take our own business really try to understand where's the market going to be in five, eight, ten years and begin to introduce ways in which we can be the ones who harness and take advantage of that as opposed to be disrupted by you know other businesses that are trying to attack that model. Could not agree with you more. Um, the, the phrase that's um, banging around in my head is a lot of these people have opened the door to being disrupted because they lost the customer narrative. They forgot why they were doing this. I mean, big companies have a lot of advantages. You can always make numbers up to be whatever you want the numbers to be. And I think this one's an interesting one here, really coming back to actually how many chief execs and C-suite do we genuinely look at ourselves really 100% honestly and go, I'm getting this right, I'm getting that wrong, and that's why I really genuinely need to do a lot better. So let's close with one, one last question to you all. Three years from now when we're all sitting and having our next digital dinner together, I would love one prediction. I think the biggest disruption I see, and I don't think say three years, I'm thinking probably more five years to 10 years, is automotive. And I think a reason from the point of view that, I don't think automotive will change a lot, but I think what automotive will change about lots and lots of other categories will be huge. So if you think of all on-demand services, we'll be massively impacted by what's gonna happen in automotive with autonomous cars. And you look at actually even retail will be massively disrupted. You look at how will cities function, how will family units function, how will finance function, and insurance, and lots of other really massive categories. And autonomous vehicles, and they'll take their time to come in, probably here faster than anywhere else. Um, but I think that, that disruption that's gonna cause is just enormous and well beyond its own category. Whereas most other disruptions happen in their own category. The shit's in automotive will drive these other yeah, massively. opportunities. Yeah. But that's a five to 10 year will, will, will Uber have drivers in five years time? And Robert? Mm. Big next corner or next thing to die? What's your yeah? I, I like to I like to think in terms of the positive, Brian. <laughs> uh, Good one, Robert. <laughs> one of the things I really believe is is going to happen is the um, the way I interact with the world is going to rapidly evolve. And so when I say the world, I mean the way I communicate with other people, the way I communicate and interact with um, my devices, 
And so the role of artificial intelligence in more actively um, pushing to me the things that it can predict I'll need or want, whether it's as simple as what Google is doing with Google Now and traffic alerts and weather alerts or anticipating what my schedule looks like and starting to give me some very, very basic advice, um, I believe that that's going to play out in ways that have yet to be discovered. Um, and so the role of messaging, artificial intelligence, and how it sort of impacts our lives, uh, I think is going to be quite fascinating. Pete, what's your, what's your prediction? I'm very excited about some of the things that are happening in biology right now, right? Just generally speaking, you want to talk about things that are out there that have the capacity for changing the game, right? In every sense of that word, right? I, uh, you know, I'm an info geek, I'm a data geek. I love the idea of augmented reality and virtual reality and these types of things, but like, if we're starting to monkey with the fundamental biology, lifespan, life quality, those are humongous. That's what questions. I want, baby. From and 75 to 140, give me it. Longevity, yeah, you know, give me it, 140. I want to thank you all again. Robert, Jennifer, Pete, Mark, Diane, what a wonderful night. Thank you for joining me tonight for our Digital Dinner Podcast. To learn more about what we're publishing, check out our site, McKinsey Digital and McKinsey on Marketing and Sales. And please, please follow us on Twitter, Digital Dinner, hashtag. Good night, everyone.